Welcome to another episode of Ed's Up, sponsored by the Southern Early Childhood Association. Ed's Up is a podcast all about children and those that care for them. Hosted by Dr. Kathy Grace and Dr. Kenya Wolf with the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. Hello, everybody. This is Kathy Grace, and welcome back to another Ed's Up. This is a podcast that we hope you will enjoy. It is all about children and those who care for children who have an interest, who parent, and who are educators of young children. Today, we have Patty Cole, who is the Senior Director of Federal Policy. Patty, welcome. And we're so glad to, for you that you've joined us. Thanks so much, Kathy. I'm really excited to be here. Would you tell our listeners a little bit about Zero to Three? Sure. Zero to Three was founded over 40 years ago by an interdisciplinary group of researchers and clinicians who all focused on infants and toddlers, and they wanted to share their knowledge of these really early years of development. So as the organization has evolved, we still emphasize the research about young children and families, and our work now focuses on translating it for parents, practitioners, and also policymakers. Our mission is to ensure that all children have the opportunity to thrive. As a policy center where I lead the federal policy work seeks to raise the visibility of infants and toddlers and families and show how almost every policy impacts this foundational development that occurs in these early years. But we also have a parenting division. So if you have parents, they should really check it out. It's a great source of information on development and also a program division that provides technical assistance um, to programs like Head Start and Early Head Start and promotes the spread of approaches that support early development. Well, we're going to put the zero to three uh, link in our written information as an introduction uh, so that if people go on and they'll see that, so they can also then go to the link and see for themselves all of the wonderful resources. I'm fortunate enough to know about those resources, and I just can't underscore enough what a wealth of knowledge that is for parents, teachers, physicians, for anybody, as I said, who would be interested in the care and health of young children. Uh, as part of your work, and you have quite a, a menu of uh, things that you've done, one of the things that Zero to Three uh, is known for and is uh, really the source is the, the State of the Babies. And so this new State of the Babies yearbook has just come out recently. And if you don't mind, could you tell us the purpose of this publication and how the information you have in here is collected? I want to highlight this is a valuable resource, and I hope that people will check it out. But I'm going to let you tell us a little bit about it. Thank you for those kind words about the yearbook. Um, so the State of Babies yearbook's main purpose is to tell the story of how babies and families in the country are faring and identify the key policies that address the needs that really show up in the yearbook's data. State of Babies isn't one thing, though. Everything comes together on stateofbabies.org, the, the website. And I urge your audience to explore the, the website to find the resources I'm going to mention. But first of all, it's a report that looks at the data and draws conclusions about what we see in the data, both nationally and across states, and makes policy recommendations. It's also a tool in the form of state profiles for state advocates and policymakers to identify where they need to focus in their states and the policies that could help bring about improvement. And those can be found on the website, and they have a just 
chock full of information about your states. And you can also get previous years um, profiles as well. But it's also a database that provides a starting point for different looks at how babies and families are faring. So you can go in yourself and look at individual indicators in the compare indicators function. That's sort of my favorite area um, that you can look at what every state's value on a particular indicator. But you also see a very informative at a glance map about the where the, the states are on that particular indicator. So State of Babies includes about 60 indicators of child and family well-being, as well as policies that are present or absent in the states. And we also include a lot of demographic data. The indicators are grouped into the three domains from our policy framework, which is good health, strong families, and positive early learning experiences. And each has different subdomains like access to health coverage or basic needs. Um, a core set of these indicators we take to group states into four tiers, to basically rank them into four tiers of our growth system, getting started, reaching forward, improving outcomes, and the highest one is working effectively. And we use the system in three ways. So states are ranked overall. So your state will have a ranking from GROW um, and also by each domain. But in the state profiles and in the compare indicators, you can also see where a state falls um, in these tiers, which are basically quartiles, on individual indicators. So that's often helpful as well. The data come from national data sets, um, like the Census Bureau's American Community Survey and the National Survey of Children's Health, as well as other data sources. But to be included, the data sets have to be available for all states, and they have to be reliable and updated regularly. So in some cases, there's a lag of several years um, between the data that we show and the, the year that we're releasing it. In the yearbook itself, in the actual report, we supplement this data with the Rapid Early Childhood Survey, which was started during the pandemic, to, and they give us data on specifically families with infants and toddlers. So we're able to give a little bit more current window. Um, and wherever possible, and I think this is Data Baby's greatest strength, the data are disaggregated by race or ethnicity, by income, and um, by urban and rural residents. So when we talk about the health and well-being of babies nationally or in individual states, this ability to see beyond the averages is absolutely critical. It sounds like that anyone who has an interest in looking about their state policy or seeing how their state ranks could not go wrong by going to this as their primary source. And you mentioned the website. Could you just mention that one more time? It's dateofbabies.org. Well, I hope that people will jot that down because, as I said, right now, uh, there's a lot of emphasis in many states on the, the care, the education, the health of babies. And if you could, could you give us an overall sketch of how you would describe the health of babies and mothers based on the findings of this report. Sure. Um, you know, and I do think that more and more people and states and policymakers are taking note of the needs of infants and toddlers and it could, their attention could not be better placed. It was clear to us from the beginning that the state where a baby is born and spends their early years can make a big difference in their well-being. The states where babies are fearing the worst are mostly in the Sun Belt and also up the spine of the Rocky Mountains. But the reasons they end up there in that tier can really differ from state to state. 
Many of the highest ranked states are on the east and west coast with a couple of states in the middle of the country. The key findings, however, stem from the disaggregated data. Um, the disparities among children of color and those in families with low income um, are disparities that place their development at risk. And they often grow from systemic racism as well as our country's job and wage structure, which means that a lot of families are in low paying jobs. And they mean that many children face challenges in realizing their potential. And that's a fact that will ultimately hold our country back as well as individual states. So in terms of inter economic security, we're concerned that policymakers and the public don't understand how many babies live in families with some level of economic hardship. The state of babies shows that 40%, that that's a significant proportion of our youngest children live in families with low income, and nearly half of those are in outright poverty. These numbers go up when we look at American Indian, Alaska Native, and Black infants and toddlers a little less than two-thirds are in families with low income, as are more than half of Latin A or Hispanic babies. Um, Mississippi has the highest poverty rate for babies in the country. And for Black infants um, and toddlers who make up 43% of the baby population in the state, more than half of them live in poverty. So when you have so many babies facing these significant challenges, it really doesn't bode well for the overall future and for their future in particular. So here's why they have such challenges. Um, infants and toddlers and families with low income are more likely than those above low income to have experiences that can threaten development. And this is something we also can tell from the state of babies data. So they're almost four times as likely to have multiple adverse early experiences that we know affect their later health and development and health as adults even, and even um, early mortality. Um, they are almost three times more likely to live in crowded housing. They have less resilient families. Um, they're less likely to have experiences that promote positive development, um, like developmental screening, uh, being read to every day, or being talked to or sung to. And because babies of color disproportionately experience poverty and low income, many of them are more likely to have these developmentally threatening experiences as well. And these disparities begin prenatally. The conditions for pregnant people and particularly black women result in truly devastating maternal mortality rates across the nation. For babies, infant mortality in the U.S. places us 46 among industrialized nations. And we see that Black infants and American Indian Alaska Native infants have high rates of premature birth and low birth weight. And, and that's a pattern that holds to some extent, even in states that overall rank highest, there's still, you still see some level of disparity. So in the yearbook, we look at some key policies that can promote positive development and economic stability. Uh, states in the bottom tiers tend to have fewer of these what we call big structural policies that we look at, although it's not necessarily uniform, but it's policies like Medicaid expansion, um, tax credits for families, um, paid family and medical leave. One of the points that we do try to make is that every state has room to grow um, and policymakers should look at their state profiles and to see where their babies are not faring so well and then consider policies and strategies that both large and locally tailored um, where they could make inroads on de decreasing these problems that we see in their babies. Well, from what you just told us, 
it appears that we have been presented with the situations, which in some cases are fairly dire, but we've also been given some possible solutions so that the yearbook shows not only where our need for attention lies, but it also gives us some opportunities to correct some of the, the problems if state policymakers decide to do that. So I'm very appreciative of you breaking it out that way so that we could understand how you could best utilize this wonderful resource. Now, the lack of mental health services for young children has always been an issue in most states. What do you think and why do you think this has been the case? And are you seeing any improvement in how states are addressing the mental health issues? particularly with COVID and the impact that COVID has had on families and in general on mental health. And if you have any ideas about any models, you might want to share with us. But I know that that is an issue of concern. So I have to say that one of the frustrations of finding data for disabled babies is the lack of good indicators on the mental health of young children, which we know this is one of the reasons we pulled in the rapid survey data, because it shows that the um, emotional distress of parents increased as economic hardship increased and the uh, distress of their babies also increased along the same lines. But um, in SATA babies, we have, we're only able to get in these national databases one indicator that looks at maternal mental health. Um, which does influence babies' mental well-being. But for infants and toddlers, we have to really look at states' Medicaid policies for screening and treatment that are allowed there, and we can't get a real measure of how babies are doing. Um, The state of babies does provide some clues as to how you might identify some of the issues that infants and toddlers might face, but unfortunately, only about a third of infants and toddlers receive a developmental screening where social and emotional development issues might be picked up, and only about half have a medical home where their needs might be addressed over time. So this lack of data could be one clue to why mental health services for young children are scarce. So people aren't aware of young children's mental health. They don't screen and collect data on it. So it's really difficult to quantify why we need more services Many people in our society are still not aware that infants and toddlers and young children actually have mental health. They have um, some many untrue and invalidating thoughts, uh, like babies and young kids will grow out of any issues, or they are too young to remember. And those still prevail, even though we know they're absolutely not true. And if the majority of people don't believe there's a need, money and resources will be allocated to other um deserving and certainly true that they exist, but there are more apparent needs for children and adults who are older and can voice their needs or have um, maybe more apparent or life-threatening behaviors. But the science is really clear that babies as young as a few months old can be impacted by traumatic experiences or neglect and show symptoms of anxiety and depression that without intervention can and often will grow into a need that's more intensive and expensive. Some states are beginning to look at the research and realize that infant and early childhood mental health is indeed the foundation um, to all other development and are allocating resources to programs and systems to address these crucial needs at earlier ages. And min- multiple states have prioritized building their uh, infinite early childhood mental health systems. A few states that ha- come to mind that have strong 
infant and early childhood mental health momentum. Um, start off with Michigan. It always comes to mind. It's a leader in developing the infant and early childhood mental health workforce, and especially through the Michigan Association for Infant Mental Health Endorsement Program. Uh, this year, the governor also doubled the budget for the state's infant and early childhood mental health consultation program. So there's some progress. Georgia is a really up-and-coming state in infant and early childhood mental health. It started with a legislative study committee focused on supporting this area, and then advocates and clinicians joined together to form their association of infant mental health, and now they're offering training in child parent psychotherapy, which is the one of the principal therapies that's appropriate for infants and toddlers uh, together with their caregivers. And they've created a state government um, infant and early childhood mental health coordinator position so that supports this new association. And the other one I've mentioned is South Carolina, which has been working to increase the awareness of um, infant and early childhood mental health and the need for the capacity to support the social and emotional well-being of young children across all these child-serving settings like child welfare and child care. And this is starting from the top. They're bringing together state leadership in all early childhood sectors, including Medicaid, to do the strategic planning to align and embed um, infant and early childhood mental health into all of these government agencies. And then it then it makes its way down to families. So lots of encouraging work going on. Thank you for that information. And one of the things you mentioned was economic stress. And in our state, in Mississippi and in other states, I think, uh, depending on the degree, we have jobs, but they're not being filled. We have a lot of folks who say that childcare is an issue. They can't go back to work because they can't find a stable place for their children in the area of uh, early care and education. I know that there has been a lack of childcare for infants, and that seems to be a national problem. Have you identified any strategies that states are implementing to address the problem? One thing that is pretty universal is the pay for early care and education workers is extremely low given some of the other professions, and that now, uh, again, I can speak to what's happening in our state, fast food workers actually make more money than those that are in the profession of early care and education, and that's becoming more and more an issue. So could you talk a little bit about what you're hearing or learning about the child care issues? As you well know, the lack of infant care has long been a problem, but it's really been exacerbated by the impacts of the pandemic on the whole child care sector. So we have the American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, that gave states a significant infusion of funds. This was a great experiment. What can states do if they have robust resources for child care? And in fact, it turns out states can do a lot, and they've used these funds to tackle the problems that plague the child care system, including infant care. Um, Some of these um, efforts aren't specific to infants, but will certainly help. For example, Oklahoma is trying to start up programs in child care deserts, which we know there are a lot of them, of places that just do not have child care programs. And a number of states are increasing payments to providers overall, and particularly to use funds to increase compensation. And that should help the supply because you're absolutely right. That is where the problem starts. Workers are not paid enough. Their early childhood educators are not paid and certainly not commensurate to the incredible skilled work that they do. And they go off to other um, employers who can pay more. So there, I think that as we think about long-term solutions, that is essential that we start there. 
But some of these efforts are specifically targeting infant-toddler care. Um, Arizona was planning to expand its quality rating and improvement system. The focus on critical gaps and access to care, including infant and toddler care. Alaska also planned to use the ARPA funds to pilot a tiered payment rate initiative for infant toddler care that would help expand the supply and, and compensate um, programs better. Colorado developed grants that would support innovative projects that make improvements like making childcare more affordable, which of course is the other part of the equation, and filling gaps in infant care, toddler care. Uh, Minnesota and Washington, Maryland, all have focused on cre- increasing reimbursement rates for infants and toddlers, which hopefully will also enable programs to pay their staff more. But the catch, of course, is that the ARPA funds will run out. Um, and obviously, we haven't been successful in Congress in realizing this vision that we all have of a robustly funded comprehensive childcare program that works for providers um, so that they're appropriately compensated, that works for families so that um, childcare doesn't take as big a bite out of their budget as um, their housing does, um, and that works for children and that it provides the quality care that their growing brains really need. Um, so we didn't get that in the Build Back Better movement. So we have to keep our energy up and keep going on the advocacy front. Stakeholders can do a great deal to help keep child care visible um, and to keep those needs that are cropping up everywhere by cultivating their state policymakers, including members of Congress, and helping them see both the critical importance of childcare to state economies. You talk about people can't take jobs because they just don't have a, a place for their children, but also the challenges that the system is facing with the staffing shortages and low wages and families who simply can't shoulder more of the cost burden. And of course, the real kicker for care is that even if families can afford to pay a lot of times they can't find the care. Um, but we need people to keep on advocating for babies. And we um, do the, our Think Babies Network. You can join it at thinkbabies.org. Um, it's a great way to get involved and keep up with what's going on in Washington. You'll also hear about recruiting for Strolling Thunder families. So Strolling Thunder is where we bring a family with an infant or toddler from every state to Washington, D.C. to meet with their members of Congress and senators. Um, We've been virtual for a couple of years and we're, fingers crossed, we're going to come back in person next spring. So if you join Think Babies at thinkbabies.org, you can watch for our recruitment outreach and think about a family who can tell the story of what it's like to raise a young child in these really challenging times. In a recent poll, zero to three, um, conducted with Morning Consult, two-thirds of parents said they needed Congress to do more in helping families meet these challenges. Having a, a family come in with their baby um, at, to walk into an office or stroll, as the case may be, into a congressional office is one of the best ways to get this message across. So I just want to thank everybody across the country for everything that you're doing to raise up these issues and just say, just keep on doing it. Patty, you've given us a great deal to think about. And as a grandmother of children who are now grown, I'm not anytime soon expecting to be a great grandmother, but I have become more and more interested in the welfare of infants and toddlers, even though I've been in early childhood for 40 plus years due to research and due to the fact that we have a lot of emphasis placed on pre-K, which is a good thing. That's a wonderful thing that there's natural, national interest in the 
four-year-olds and five-year-olds. But it all begins with the babies. So we've got to try to elevate the public understanding of that importance in a child's development. So we thank you so much for spending time with us and giving us all of this information to react to. And I'm digging into that yearbook and I already got some ideas. So I just appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Kathy. And I will just say that I totally identify. um, I have a one-year-old grandson. And these issues that we've worked on professionally for years just come alive when you see um, that development and you wanted to be so su- uh, supported so well. And you also hear from your own children, or in your case, maybe your grandchildren, the challenges they face with paid fam- not having paid family leave or um, the nightmare finding childcare. And you just realize how important it is to support our young families. So thank you so much for having me. I just hope everybody will get out there and advocate for babies. Patty, thank you so much for being with us. I was fortunate enough to observe the strolling thunder uh, during a period of time when I was in Washington, and it is a magnificent sight. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us today for Ed's Up. If you have an early education topic you'd like to discuss, let us know about it at edsup at olemiss.edu. The Ed's Up podcast is a production of the Graduate Center for the Study of Early Learning at the University of Mississippi. The views and opinions of podcast participants are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of the university, its employees, or any affiliated entity.